really great documentary on Netflix called The Pharmacist. Have you seen that? I have not, but I've been told about it. Yeah, it, it's basically does it, about, does it go over the opioid crisis or? How did you know? It act, it actually <laughs> does. Um, it, it's about this uh, this pharmacist uh, uh, in the U.S. who you know his son has a tragic death, um, but basically his son got killed in a a, a drug deal gone wrong. Um, and then at some point, this pharmacist investigates the murder and somehow that leads him to kind of becoming very, very passionate about solving uh, the local opioid crisis. He right. notices that these um, uh, customers all of a sudden are buying all of these narcotics at his pharmacy. And then he, he traces this back to this doctor's clinic that they call a pill mill, where this doctor is basically just handing out you know, mm-hmm. prescriptions of narcotics for all kinds of patients who don't need it and just getting basically getting paid to give prescriptions of narcotics wow. to them. Uh, eventually gets busted by, I think, the the DEA or, or something yeah. like that. But, uh, and then he goes on this whole uh, mission to, you know, take it to Big Pharma who've been, you know, wow. perpetuating the opioid crisis and things like that. But it's a very fascinating documentary. Yeah. So his his son died from like an overdose or? No, no, his son, actually, so it's funny, so his son's, his son's death has nothing to do with the, op- the opioid crisis. Okay. It's more that, um, I think, after losing his son, um, he just somehow became really impassioned about trying to solve problems related to to drugs in his community. Right. And that just wow. eventually led to the opioid crisis. Oh, cool. And then focuses on pharmacies, I guess. <laughs> Hence the yeah, name. Yeah, pill mills, you know, yeah, pill yeah. Mills. Interesting. Well, uh, today we have a, a topic that's obviously related. Uh, we're going to be covering the opioid crisis, and obviously Josh is an expert on this topic, so we thought we would... You, you want to list my credentials, Alex? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, but we, we do have experience, uh, obviously, reducing opioids on, on CMOSMD and, and working with a number of prominent systems who are actively involved in, in the preventing this crisis from, from continuing and reducing the crisis. So um, we thought it would be a good idea to, to cover opioids on, on this podcast. Josh, do you want to give maybe a, a, a summary or high level of what the opioid crisis is? Yeah, I mean, look, I mean, opioids came out initially because, um, you know, pain management is a big thing for both chronic pain users, but also if you've had, you know, a big, a big surgery and uh, pain's a big part of, um, you know, recovery and, and managing that. Um, and then opioids, I guess, came out as this blockbuster drug uh, as a way to tackle significant pain. Um, but clearly what's happened over the last, you know, couple of decades is, um, you know, people were, uh, we found opioids to be um, addictive. And then you have patients, unfortunately, where that addiction leads to overdose and, and deaths. Um, and often, you know, these medications end up on the black market and and all that kind of stuff. And so mm-hmm. there's been a big push in the past you know, several years to um, prevent unnecessary um, you know, opioid use and, and deaths. And I think what's interesting is that um, we, we often assume that opioid addiction starts off because people you know, become, you know, are, are maybe chronic you know, um, pain patients or who right. maybe get uh, and then get opioids or maybe just get opioids off of the street or in the black market. Um, but what people don't realize is that very often it's patients who get opioids for the first time because of a surgery. Mm-hmm. 
And, and so um, in the, the surgery world, we've realized that, hey, like we're contributing to the crisis in some way and we have a part to play um, in trying to, to solve it. And especially in, in the surgery world, especially with opioid naive patients. So these are patients that have never taken opioids before and the first time that they're getting it is, is you know, after surgery to manage their pain. Um, I think I, there was a recent study that came out in JAMA was published in JAMA um, just last month, and it was for cardiac surgery, and they were finding that one-tenth of all opioid-naive patients who are getting opioids for the first time after surgery are the ones that 90 days after surgery are still uh, filling their prescriptions for opioids, um, which is obviously extending beyond 90 days. They, they might even become chronic users. Yeah, it was a study done by uh, Dr. Namesh Desai out of, out of um, Penn Medicine, um, and so it's some great work there. And I think it's important because, I mean, everyone knows that some percent of patients, I mean, everyone knows now that some percent of patients who are opioid naive, like you said, going into surgery now kind of persistent, uh, you know, users. But what's often not understood is, well, what do those numbers look like for different uh, surgical procedures? Mm-hmm. Or even just getting even more granular, like what are the risk factors of certain patients that make them more likely to be persistent users? Because ultimately, what we want to do is somehow be able to kind of tailor and personalize maybe our opioid prescribing guidelines, not only based on surgery at some point, but also on the individual patient, which we're not, we're not certainly not there yet. And I think as we get into later in discussion, we're still, I think as a healthcare system, you know, globally, we're still very early on in trying to even just get basic best practice opioid prescription guidelines into place, let, let alone tailored personal, you know, treatments on that note. Yeah. And so some of the methods that um, we're taking as a, an industry to get to more of a personalized approach, I know there are opioid risk tools that are out um, that basically calculate the risk of a patient developing uh, an addiction. And I think it factors in different things like age and it factors in substance abuse history with their family and personal uh, history and, and then calculates a score for the patient. Um, in terms of personalizing what the opioids would be for a patient, like you're saying, uh, it would be procedure based, but then patient based. Is that what the opioid risk tool is basically doing, or, or are you suggesting something else as well? Well, I mean, so the, the the risk tools right now, all they do is they kind of spit out uh, scores, right? So um, it, it's it, they help us kind of quantitatively understand, like based on this patient's, you know, like say medical history, like you mentioned what's their risk of being, let's say, um, a persistent user going forward kind of thing, right? But that's all that tells you. It doesn't actually, it's, it's, it's often not very used in an actual way. I think, you know, one of the things that we think about with, with digital patient engagement is the idea of being like, okay, well, um, not only do we know their historical risk factors, but, you know, we have partners on SeamlessMD who are collecting, let's say, daily opioid consumption data when they go home. And so what we're starting to do now is actually graph out, well, what is the average number, what's the average number of, let's say, pills, opioid pills a patient takes during the recovery process? And then how do we use that to better understand how much they really need? So for example, a lot of our partners are asking patients every day for the first 30 days when they go on seamless MD, patients get a, a notification saying, hey, you know, how many, how many narcotic pills did you take in the past 24 hours? And as we collect that data, we have our, our healthcare partners now looking at dashboards where they're seeing what is the actual opioid use when the patient goes home. And the idea is that, well, maybe the average patient was prescribed 30 pills after a surgery, 
but then the data shows the average patient is actually just taking 15. Well, now right. you have data to give your team confidence that, hey, you know what, maybe we, we don't need to prescribe 30. Maybe we start prescribing 25 to start, and then at some point it becomes 20. And then at the same time, Seamless is collecting data from patients daily recovery around pain scores too. Right. So now we can look at the data later on and say, okay, well, number one, um, we're prescribing less opioids over time now. And number two, oh, the pain scores actually aren't changing. The pain is mm -hmm. just as well controlled. Mm -hmm. um, and then number three, we can ask patients, hey, like, what are you doing with, like, how many pills do you have left over? And I think what you'll find, and, you know, there's good data that came out of the University of Michigan um, Health System, which showed that, you know, in outpatient general surgery, for example, 72% of opioid pills that are prescribed go unused. Wow. Um, and in fact, uh, on a side note, um, back in back in 2017 in September, uh, the state of Michigan actually did a statewide, um, they called it a, an opioid recovery drive. And patients basically gave them back, you know, 17,500 unused opioid pills. Wow. So there's a ton of these that just are going unused. Right. But the problem historically has been that healthcare providers have no data on actual consumption from patients on opioids. And so they didn't want to change their practices. Right. But if we can give them granular data about how many opioids patients actually take, they can safely start reducing their prescriptions and have confidence with reducing it. Um, and I think then, so that, that's good to start, but I think where we want to get to from a digital patient engagement point of view is say, okay, well, now that we know opioid consumption on average across a cardiac surgery population, a gynecology population, phase two is going to be, okay, how do we actually distill that data down further and really deliver targeted opioid prescription guidelines on a per patient basis. So the idea being that now that we have the patient reported consumption data, can we combine that with the, the patient's opioid risk factors using those tools you mentioned earlier and figure out, okay, maybe there's certain types of patients who should, who only need five pills and there's others who only, who need 10 and maybe there are others who need 25 because they have other problems going on. Right. So those, that's a sort of individual patient level um, personalization that we think we can get to at some point. Hmm. We're not, no one's there yet, but right. we've at least started phase one. We're getting that granular patient reported consumption data for opioids. As right. starting. And the, the data is the most important thing in the beginning because you can't, you can't make a decision without the data. Right. Um, and I think it's interesting as well, Josh, you bring up University of Michigan. They're in my in my head and based on the research that, that I've done, they, they are kind of leaders in this space and in, in terms of um, tackling this opioid epidemic and, and really taking a look at um, what they can study with their own patients and, and see how their opioid prescriptions are, are um, currently, how they're prescribing currently, what their practices are, and then what the actual consumption data is. Do you have any data in terms of the the actual opioid um, data that University of Michigan was putting out around reducing these these prescriptions? Yeah, I, and, and so maybe to give a bit more history there, one, one of the um, unique things about uh, the state of Michigan is they have a very strong uh, set of quality collaboratives, um, uh, especially in the surgical realm, um, that's supported by Blue Cross Blue Shield as, as an insurer. And so Blue Cross Blue Shield has often funded different quality initiatives and research initiatives so that they could better understand what are best practices to improve outcomes and lower costs, and then fund actually rolling out across the state of Michigan. So one of the things that they funded was this really great um, initiative called the, the Michigan Open Network. And 
what it stands for is the um, Opioid Prescribing Engagement Network. And it's, it's led by some fantastic folks, um, you know, Dr. Mike Anglesby, um, who actually uh, is a director of the Michigan Surgical Quality Collaborative, Dr. Jennifer Wallagy, who's a, a plastic surgeon at U of Michigan, who's done, doing a lot of work with Dr. Anglesby on the opioid uh, initiative as well. And what they did, and I think this was back in, I want to say 2017, if I'm not mistaken, but basically they selected six procedures initially, and these were um, uh, laparoscopic cholecystectomies or, or, or gallbladders, uh, laparoscopic hernia repairs, thyroid surgery, uh, prostatectomies, um, sinus operations, and then also gastrectomies, sleep gastrectomies, um, so bariatrics. And they said, hey, you know, we're going to take these. Um, and they were OPI naive, naive patients, mm -hmm. and said so that we're going to put them all on an on um, an opioid sparing or opioid avoidance, avoidance pathway, and advise patients to you know basically use Tylenol and Advil, and then here's a little bit of opioids in case you really really need it. Just in and case. then that's a rescue, yeah. As rescue, and then they actually had them complete you know patient reported outcome surveys at the end of I think 30 days or something like that, or every few weeks. And the point was to see, okay, like, can we successfully prescribe fewer opioids than, than we otherwise would and not have a change in patient satisfaction or pain? And the answer basically was yes. And then what they did then was they um, extended this practice to a number of other, you know, procedures and then collected a lot of data. And long story short is this Michigan Open initiative ended up creating these really great um, guidelines that you can find online at michigan-open.org and the idea is that for for i think about 18 to 20 different you know common surgical procedures they show you the evidence around here's why you only need to prescribe you know zero to 15 pills for a gallbladder i'm making the numbers but something mm -hmm. like that and the idea is that when they then started kind of um you know implementing these guidelines more broadly in the state of michigan and they actually had uh, about 43 hospitals that participate in using these guidelines, they actually uh, reduced the number of opioid pills prescribed um, by about a third. Right. And they saw no change in, you know, um, you know, patient, um, you know, satisfaction, no change in pain scores, et cetera. But a key thing, what they found was that you can't just prescribe a different number of opioids. It was critical that as part of this initiative, they re-engineered a lot of the patient education, right? So they had to educate patients more on opioid avoidance, the dangers of it, set clear expectations about pain management, right? Patients knowing that it's normal to have some pain, right? Mm -hmm. And it's normal to, to kind of manage a little bit of that pain. Tolerable amount. Yeah. Um, and then kind of the, the other neat thing that Michigan did was Blue Cross said, hey, said, hey, you know, why don't we see if um, reimbursing surgeons for um, following these best practice opioid sparing pathways will actually incentivize more surgeons to to follow this right and so they actually um blue cross blue shield in michigan offered a um it's called like a modifier basically for for um for surgery they would pay this they basically pay the surgeons 35 percent more to use these opioid sparing uh, procedures and so in michigan surgeons were reimbursed about you know 300 to 700 dollars more per surgery if they follow these best practices um and you know i think they saw a little bit of benefit there it's unclear i think so far if this sort of reimbursement would would be successful as a strategy statewide um 
but it's interesting to see how to see that Michigan has been very forward thinking about um, seeing how they can number one establish best practice protocol, number two tie reimbursement to that that improved quality. Um, I haven't seen it anywhere else uh, in the U.S. or the world where they're actually tying reimbursement to the, you know following these best practice opening pathways. That's very very novel. Right. I think it's also important to mention, um, you know, with some of these best practice, this new education that we're giving to patients around setting expectations around a tolerable amount of pain that they'll have after surgery, um, that also fits in really well with what enhanced recovery after surgery is all about. Um, enhanced recovery after surgery is obviously one of the main goals is to reduce opioids. And in, in order to do that, that patient expectation setting is one of the most important factors uh, of a successful program. In terms of the actual um, methods that are applied, is this something that you would see other insurers kind of jumping on the, the bandwagon and seeing, hey, if this is a global or, or at least a national epidemic, is there something that we can do to help incentivize our, our doctors? Do you think that that would be a, um, an appropriate response from, from payers as well? Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think I'm surprised Probably some of the work done in Michigan hasn't spread more broadly, or at least to other maybe Blue Cross Blue Shield insurers in different states. Um, you know, I know one of the things that they've also tried in the past is actually doing a similar uh, modifier code to the reimbursement where for, for surgeons in Michigan, I think if they were doing prehabilitation, they could get additional reimbursement. I don't know. I don't know if that's taken off quite as quickly either. Um, but I, I do think that, um, you know, Ideally, in my world, right, you you make a truly value base where you you reimburse for the specific outcomes or metrics. But I think there's something to be said for reimbursing for best practices. So you know, there's fee for service on one end where you're just reimbursing them for just doing stuff like just doing a surgery. Then there's completely value based where you're reimbursing based on metrics. But I think there's a reasonable in between where you're reimbursing for following a best practice, right? So. I actually think even probably more important at this point than like specifically an opioid or a prehab reimbursement, given how widespread enhanced recovery is and how so much of enhanced recovery ties into opioid sparing and, and you know prehab. I actually think to some extent, if you could, if the, if the payer or the, or the government clearly define what's the minimum number of things you have to be, to have to do to be considered an enhanced recovery pathway, like at least the bare minimum, like probably opioid sparing, probably some other early mobilization, whatever it is, if you can demonstrate those things, um, you should probably tie reimbursement to it. Right. Like maybe even um, reimburse certain organizations or, or physicians for actually showing that they are following an ERAS pathway because we know the data is clear on ERAS. So why not, like don't just pay them to do the surgery, pay them for doing the surgery well. And not just the surgery, like the whole perioperative episode. Sure. Yeah. Uh, why not? Like, why is no one? I, I'm shocked no one has tried that as a pair to just put a billing code for saying you've you've done enhanced recovery. Right. And and why do you think that is? Do you think just there's a thousand billing codes right now, and and it's you know too difficult for them to to get everybody uh -huh. on board? Or yeah, yeah. And that, I'm actually surprised no one's tried that. And I think I yeah. think actually Michigan is one of the best states to do it. Like like Michigan and Blue Cross clearly have a a mechanism for tying doing a testing on a new reimbursement code right. for best practice as they've done already as we mentioned they have right. they still they have a clear path route to do it i'm actually shocked they haven't tried that i think mm -hmm. maybe they have and i just don't know it but i think that would be a great thing for them to do right 
I think it's also important to mention Michigan has one of the best statewide collaboratives. Um, and, and I think one of the earliest ones that were formed as well. Oh, I think they were the first. I think they were literally the pioneers of it. And then right. now you have, it, you have it in Illinois, you have it in Tennessee, you have it in Connecticut, et cetera, et cetera. Right. And so maybe that's why they have such a good relationship with their, their insurers because the entire state is kind of rallied behind it that they're able to kind of implement things a little bit faster could be. In terms of our, our technologies that we have in the hospital today um, around EHRs, let's say, what's their kind of limitation for tackling this problem? I know that you know with an EHR you can track opioid prescriptions, but can we go beyond that or, or what's kind of the limitation there? Yeah, and this kind of reminds me of the discussion when it comes to like smart partners doing enhanced recovery. So, you know, the EHR is really good at telling you what what I guess providers uh, were, were ordered to do. So the same kind of order sets, right? So we, we know, like we, we document in the EHR things like, okay, the provider was supposed to mobilize the patient. They were ordered to prescribe this, this non-opioid um, medication, right? But one of the missing data points in healthcare has always been the patient reported outcome, which is did the patient actually do it? And so one of the gaps that we close with Seamless is we actually track true patient compliance, right? We ask the patient, okay, well, you know, how many steps or laps did you walk in the hospital? Did you mobilize? How many hours were you out of your, your patient bed, right? How many opioids pills did you take, you know, during recovery, right? And what you often find is that what a patient has actually done doesn't match what they were ordered to do, or sometimes, frankly, doesn't match what a provider claims that happened, right? right. And so that mismatch tells you something. Um, and so, you know, CMS MD or, or a digital patient engagement platform of this type helps to fill in that gap. And, and, and I think more importantly, helps provide a, a more complete data set. So if you are thinking about building more robust analytics modules or, or using machine learning to predict which, you know, the, the, the tailored opioid um, pathways that the patient needs, you have to fill that patient reported gap. Right. No, totally. And so currently that patient voice is missing where we're missing almost one side of the equation. Um, but with a, a digital patient engagement platform, we're now collecting that patient voice. We can add that data to the EHR data and get a more complete picture. Um, in terms of how CMOSMD is specifically reducing opioid uh, in, in the health system, has that happened yet, or um, is it still too early for that? Yeah, and I think I think the key thing that I mentioned earlier is the fact that we're number one. Um, helping to track that opioid consumption with patients, right? So we're pumping them every day to tell us how much they're taking. And then we graph that back for the care team. So again, if they were prescribing 30 pills and the data showing the average patient takes 15, now they can uh, intentionally try to reduce it. So, you know, a good example of that is, you know, our, our friends over at, at HRIP Health in, in, in Charlotte, you know, they actually uh, presented some research at the, uh, the ERAS USA conference uh, in 2019 and what they looked at was the opioid consumption data uh, in their hepatobiliary surgery program that they collected on Seamless MD. And basically what they found was that the average patient um, used about 10% of the actual um, amount of opioids they're prescribed. And so that's, the, I mean, that, that's certainly not 100% of all patients who answer that data, but it's, it's telling you that there's likely a discrepancy between, a pretty big discrepancy between how much they are being prescribed and how much they actually need. Right. So at the very least, that gives them pause to go, okay, maybe we can start prescribing maybe 
90% of what we prescribed before and see if that changes patient demand for, for more narcotics or changes gain scores. I mean, one of the neat things that the group out of Michigan did was they looked at the correlation between number of pills prescribed after surgery and refills. And long story short, they basically found that the amount of pills you prescribe to patients for, for opioids um, was not at all predictive of, of, of refills. So like, regardless of whether you prescribe a little or a lot of opioids, 78% of patients ask for a refill of opioids. It was consistent across the board. Right. And that tells you something. It tells you right. that pretty much patients end up using what they use to fit what you prescribe them to some extent. Um, and so that's where we're seeing value. The other place that we're seeing value with digital engagement is the education piece, right? So we're, we're not only educating patients on like what an opioid is and non-opioid um, uh, options, like you can see the benefit or ibuprofen, but as part of our, our education, we're helping them understand what are safe disposal methods for opioids? How do you return the ones you don't use so they don't, they don't end up, you know, in the black market or end up being used by family or friends that they shouldn't really be using you know what i mean mm -hmm. and so we actually go further than just the data collection and the the education on opioids we go to just the safe disposal engagement as well and so there's multiple different ways that our partners are leveraging the platform to tackle kind of the opioid um uh crisis across that whole that whole perioperative episode right I imagine also like those opioid risk tools can be built into Seamless MD as well. I'm sure some of our partners have have that built into a pre-op survey, for instance, to just calculate a quick risk score. Yeah, absolutely, and I, I think it's going to be you know, I mean, increasingly prevalent that as we talked about, the next step in the future is let's combine the risk tool data with the consumption data and build that model up. Um, and I think that's going to be very, very compelling. Definitely. So basically. Jumping off of you know what Michigan has already done, but now collecting that granular data from patients makes a more full set of data so that we can improve from there. How how would um, how would the actual mechanics work for uh, like a machine learning algorithm of of uh, opioid uh, for a personalization effort for opioids? Do you, do you know that or or is this something we would need to involve? Uh, yeah, well, you know, given the the PhD I did in in machine learning. <laughs> And computer science at, at Stanford. I, I'm 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 very well uh, equipped to answer that question. But but in all seriousness, I probably want to bring in some of our, our our data science folks into a conversation because that way they won't get mad at me later for butchering. Um, trying to speak more intelligently about machine learning than, than I'm able to. Um, but but certainly the, the the feedback I'm always getting from them is about making sure we have the data. The the machine learning is relatively easy part. Um, right. It's the data that typically the hard part getting. And so we're kind of in a unique position to actually help our partners capture that data and then help mm -hmm. them build the models to, to predict those things. Right. I, I just want to jump back for a minute. The, the Michigan study, I think to me, one of the most incredible findings in there is that the patient satisfaction did not decrease whatsoever. So the, the median patient satisfaction was still the exact same as when they were giving opioids versus when they had far fewer opioids, when they were prescribing only like four pills, for instance, as a, a backup, just in case. The fact that satisfaction doesn't go down, um, but I think it was mentioned, you know, in the study, the importance of educating the patient and going over expectations and, and really letting them know there will be a tolerable amount of pain uh, after surgery. That's such a, a key part, I think, in this in this modality. Yeah, I mean, whenever I speak with particularly like anesthesiologists and, and pain management specialists, you know, one of the things that they always tell me is 
Um, the one of the most effective things they can do is simply set a clearer patient expectation about pain going into a procedure. It's almost like that just changes, it changes the benchmark for the patient mentally. You know, even just letting them know, hey, like some pain is normal, mm -hmm. right? It, it, it will get better. Like it's not gonna go away completely when you're recovering. And it's almost just resetting that mindset for the patient about what, what, what to expect, what's, what's normal. That makes them, I mean, it may, and, and psychologically it makes sense too. Totally. Right? Yeah. Uh, if someone tells me, Josh, you're, you're going to have two out of 10 pain. It's okay. It will you'll happen. Pain. You'll, yeah. it. you'll make it. Um, and it's better to, it's better to deal with that two out of 10 pain on Tylenol than like potentially get addicted to opioids. If you explain it to me, I would say, okay, totally get it. Right. And I, I think it's also interesting. It's in a way kind of related to prehab a little bit where you, you're doing a lot more work almost on the front loading side, but to, to get the payoff on the back end as well. Um, that's really cool. Absolutely, yeah. Um, and so, I mean, this is, this is one of the things that, that, that's true about avoiding opioids or about URAS or best practice in general. Like the tools are here. We, we know there's so much data and like especially Michigan that does some great work with these guidelines. Like we know what the right thing to do is. It's not hard to, like they figured it out. They've done all the hard work, frankly, right? But then arguably the, the harder work is actually getting people to change practice. Right. right. But that's a cool thing about, about digital engagement, Alan, is that you just like tell your clinicians, hey, we're going to enroll patients on a platform like Seamless. It's going to it's going to automate that opioid sparing education. It's going to set proper expectations that, that you help define internally. It's going to collect that data for you. Like you, in some ways, you can sort of set it and forget it and then use that data to improve practice. Right. And then monitor the trends over time. You can see it in dashboards, what the actual opioid trends are for the population. Yeah. And, and you know what? Let's say you have some non-believers in your department. Let's say you have like, you know, I'm making it up. Let's say you have six surgeons, right? And only half of them are bought into, you know, an opioid sparing pathways. Say, okay, well, all your patients will go on seamless and half of them will be on the opioid sparing pathway, half of them won't. And then you can see, okay, well, maybe you can show, and this is why I predict, you can show that um, the pain scores, you know, don't dramatically differ. The satisfaction mm -hmm. don't, don't significantly differ. And yet half your patients are using you know, 33% less opioids. Right. And then you show that data to the, the surgeons who, who weren't necessarily bought into an opioid sparing pathway. And when you show data to people, they go, okay, I get it. I believe it. Now. And then that combined with, you know, there's so much data right now showing, you know, one tenth of your patients will be hooked on opioids following surgery. So you combine those data sets together and it's, it's almost a no brainer. The approach yeah. that you need to go. And sometimes you just need to see it with your own data. And then that's one of the powerful things about, about the software. You can actually more quickly get that data so that you can, you can be, they can make those proper decisions. Right. Otherwise you keep persisting the dogma around opioids and, and then no one gets better. Right. Totally. Have you yourself, have you ever used an opioid or, or had a surgery that needed one? I mean, the, I mean, I haven't had any major surgeries. I had my wisdom teeth taken out maybe 15 years ago, and I think I got some Tylenol threes. Right. That I don't think I used, to be honest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, you know, I did have a family member in the last couple of years who who went through a major surgery, and I had actually, you know, educated her on avoiding narcotics, right? And then I remember, um, because I I kind of just like really really got her aware of this this problem. And I remember her anesthesiologists were, were trying to tell her to take opioids. And she looks at them. She goes, yeah, but my pain isn't one out of 10. Like, why do I have to take this? Right. I haven't taken them yet. Why are you pushing them on me? Right. right. And, so, and so 
and this was at a big academic medical center who frankly like was attributing aware of these uh, uh of these opioid sparing pathways but but it doesn't matter if you're a big brand name mm. yeah. you know it's it's told this is not it's not the standard yet right and i think going back to your point about you know changing practice this is how they've been educated this is how we've learned well you know we're going to prescribe this because that's what's in the pathway that's what we follow and we we tell our patients you know take this opioid when you have some pain so changing practice is kind of the the most important step there yeah and by the way Alan, that might be the reason why some of these financial incentives don't necessarily work hmm. like sometimes you can you can pay someone 33 percent more in the surgery but if just mentally they're not bought into the concept they won't necessarily change people right. won't just do things they don't believe in just because they're getting paid more i think that maybe that's kind of the gap in terms of why you can't just re create reimbursement because people magically do things. They have, they have to fundamentally believe in, in the change. Yeah. So, I mean, to that point, um, we'll definitely put in the show notes all of the, the studies that we've referenced here, all the Michigan work and the, the later uh, uh, University of Pennsylvania JAMA published study that just came out. Um, because I think maybe having more of these studies really does cement um the the realization that there is a problem uh, and and surgeons are, are definitely not immune to this problem they're they're contributing to it in some way absolutely that's a great idea alan awesome well i i i think we are we're running tight on time today but um i think we've we've covered a lot on the the opioid uh, epidemic and and really how digital patient engagement can can help with uh reducing prescription practices and and at least collect the data from patients, which I think is that, that missing part of the equation uh, that, that uh, this technology can help support. Um, do you have any closing remarks on, on opioids or? No, I, I think you summarize it well. Um, and uh, hopefully we can you know, make some small impact in helping to address the, the opioid uh, epidemic with our partners. Definitely, yeah, I agree. Well, in, until next time, uh, Josh, I'll, I'll see you again next week. Yes, sounds good, Alan. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Bye. Bye.